0: Chapter Seventeen of Love Romances of the Aristocracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Betty B. Love Romances of the Aristocracy by Thornton Hall. Chapter Seventeen The Countess Who Married Her Groom life has seldom dawned for any daughter of a noble house more fair or full of promise than for the infant lady susanna cochrane second daughter of john fourth earl of dundonald all that rank and wealth and beauty could give were hers by birth her mother was an earl's daughter and had for grandfather the duke of athol her paternal grandmother was lady susanna hamilton daughter of the duke of hamilton and on both sides she came from a line of fair women, many of whom, like her mother, had ranked among the most beautiful in all Scotland. Such was the splendid heritage of Lady Susanna when she opened her eyes on the world two centuries ago, and during the earlier years of her life it seemed that fortune, who had already dowered her so richly, could not smile too sweetly on her she grew to girlhood and young womanhood more beautiful even than her mother or her two sisters anne and catherine of whom the former became a duchess at sixteen while catherine was not long out of the schoolroom before her hand was won by the earl of galloway as for susanna the loveliest of the three graces scotland's fairest daughter to quote a chronicler of the time she counted her high-place lovers by the score almost before she had graduated into long frocks and charles sixth earl of strathmore was accounted the luckiest man north of the tweed when he won her for his bride it was an ideal union this of the beautiful lady susanna with the stalwart and handsome young earl the fairest lass and bonniest lad in all scotland and none who saw their radiant happiness on their wedding-day could have dreamt how soon tragedy was to close so bright a chapter of romance for a few short years the young earl and his countess were ideally happy i never thought lady strathmore wrote to a friend that life could be so sweet the days are all too short to crowd my happiness into then when the sky was fairest the blow fell one may day in the year seventeen twenty eight the young earl went to forfar to attend the funeral of a friend and among his fellow mourners were two men of his acquaintance james carnegie of Finhaven, and a mr lyon of brigton the latter a distant relative of the earl after the funeral the three men sat drinking together as was the custom of the time and then adjourned to a tavern in forfar where they continued their potations until all three were beyond all doubt in an advanced state of intoxication and ripe for any mischief from the tavern they went uproariously drunk to call on a sister of carnegie where mr lyon not only became quarrelsome but with drunken jocularity had the audacity to pinch his hostess's arms it was with the utmost difficulty that lord strathmore induced his two companions to leave the house in which one of them had so far forgotten what was due from him as a gentleman and it was scarcely to be wondered at that an unseemly brawl began almost as soon as they were in the street mr lyon began to conduct himself more outrageously than before now that the modified restraint of a lady's presence was removed with boisterous horseplay he pushed carnegie into a deep gutter which ran by the roadside and from which Carnegie emerged covered with mud and raging with fury. Such an insult could only be wiped out with blood, and drawing his sword, Carnegie rushed at his tormentor. The Earl, in order to avert a tragedy, imprudently threw himself between the two antagonists with the intention of diverting the blow. Carnegie's sword entered his body, passing clean through it, and he fell to the ground a dying man. Two hours later, the young earl gasped his life out in the tavern where he had drunk not wisely but too well thus a drunken brawl following on a funeral made a widow of the beautiful countess of strathmore just when life was at its brightest and best and when the days seemed all too short to hold her happiness as for james carnegie of Finhaven, he was brought to trial on a charge of murder and every nerve was strained to bring him to the gallows that this was not his fate in spite of the terrible provocation he had received and the obviously accidental nature of the tragedy he owed entirely to the skill and eloquence of his counsel robert dundas of arniston who played so cleverly on the feelings and self-importance of the jury that they returned a verdict of acquittal the widow countess mourned her lord deeply and sincerely more beautiful than ever she was barely twenty when this tragedy came to cloud her life and richly dowered many a wooer sought to console her with a new prospect of wedded happiness she had naught to say to any of them she preferred to live alone with her memories and to find solace in good works and thus for seventeen years she lived a model of all that is beautiful in womanhood captivating all hearts by her sweetness and graciousness and by a beauty which sorrow only served to refine and make more lovely still thus we find her in seventeen forty five a gracious and lovely woman still young dispensing her charities and hospitalities and esteemed everywhere as a model of all the proprieties but she was still a woman romance and passion were by no means dead in her and to this eternal feminine we must look for an explanation of the strange event which now follows in her story. Among the countess's many servants was one George Forbes, a young and strikingly handsome groom who had been taken on as stable-boy by her late husband. Forbes was a simple manly fellow, a peasant's son, and with no ambition beyond the state of life to which he had been born. He was proud of the fact that he had served his mistress well and that she liked him that lady strathmore valued her groom was proved by the fact that she chose him as her escort whenever she went riding and that she promoted him to the charge of her stables a proof of confidence which no doubt he had earned but that his high-placed mistress should regard him otherwise than as a servant was an absurd idea which never entered his head one day however the countess summoned the groom to her presence and to his amazement and embarrassment told him that she had long grown to love him and that she asked nothing better of life than to become his wife overcome with surprise and confusion forbes protested but my lady think of the difference between us you are one of the greatest ladies in the land and i am no better than the earth you tread on you must not say that the countess replied you are more to me than rank or riches these i count as nothing compared with the happiness you have it in your power to bestow in the face of such pleading from one so beautiful and so reverenced what could the poor groom do but consent fearful though he was of the consequences of such an ill assorted union and thus strangely and romantically it was that one april day in seventeen forty five the countess of strathmore the descendant of dukes and kings gave her hand at the altar to the ex-stable lad and peasant's son what followed this singular union was precisely what was to be expected the countess was disowned by her noble relatives her friends with one consent gave her the cold shoulder and unable to bear any longer the constant slights and her complete isolation she was thankful to escape with her low-born husband to the continent here familiarity with the groom quickly and naturally perhaps bred contempt and disillusion his coarseness offended every susceptibility he was frankly impossible in such an intimate relation and after she had given birth to a daughter in holland she arranged a separation for which the groom was at least as grateful as herself the child the very sight of whom reminding her as she did of the father she could not bear was placed in a convent at rouen where she was tenderly cared for by the abbess and nuns as for the mother weary and disillusioned she rambled aimlessly and miserably about the continent until after nine years of unhappiness death came to her at paris as a merciful friend such was the sordid close of a life that had opened as fairly as any that has fallen to the lot of woman and what of the child who drew from her mother royal and ducal strains and from her father the blood of stablemen and peasants at the rouen convent she grew up to girlhood perfectly happy among the nuns she learned to love the sad and beautiful lady who had come once or twice to see her and who she was told was her mother had become a dim memory of early girlhood who the great lady was and who was her father she did not know this knowledge the nuns in their wisdom kept from her if indeed they knew themselves one day in 1761 her days of childish happiness came to an abrupt and sensational end a rough seafaring man called at the convent with a letter from her father demanding the return of his daughter the bearer was sent by the captain of a merchant vessel who had instructions to convey the girl from rouen to leith and after an affecting farewell to the abbess and nuns who had been so kind to her susan janet amelia for that was the girl's name, started with her strange escort on the long journey to a parent with whom she had never consciously seen. The father, released by the death of the countess, had married a second wife of his own station, and had settled as a livery stable-keeper at Leith, where, with his rapidly growing family, he had now made his home for some years. At last Amelia was handed over to the custody of her groom-father, who conducted her to his home, which as may be imagined was a pitiful and sordid exchange for the peace and happiness of her convent life from the first day the new life was impossible amelia was treated by her stepmother with coarseness and brutality she was daily taunted with her dependent position and shown in a hundred ways that her presence was unwelcome can one wonder that the proud spirit of the girl rebelled against such ignominy it was better far to trust to the mercy of the world than to bear the brutal treatment of her low-born stepmother and thus it came to pass that early one morning before the household was awake amelia slipped stealthily away with a few shillings all her worldly possessions in her pocket walking a few miles along the shore she took the packet-boat and crossed to the fife coast thus placing a broad arm of the sea between herself and the house of misery and oppression she had left forever. for days this descendant of scotland's proudest nobles tramped aimlessly through the country sleeping in barns or craving the shelter of the humblest cottage and when her money was exhausted even begging her bread from door to door at last human nature reached its limit late one night footsore and fainting from exhaustion and hunger she presented herself at a remote farmhouse and begged piteously for a meal and a night's rest none but the hardest heart could have resisted such a pathetic appeal and farmer lauder and his good wife had hearts as large as their bodies at last the waif had fallen among good samaritans she was received with open arms and instead of being sent away in the morning was cordially invited to make her home with them the rest of amelia's strange life story can be told in a few words after a few years of peaceful and happy life in the hospitable farmhouse she married the farmer's only son an honest and worthy young fellow who loved her dearly she became the mother of many children who in their humble life knew nothing of their high-placed cousins the dukes and earls of another world than theirs when in process of time her husband died many of her children had died young the rest were far from prosperous mrs lauder retired to spend her last days in a small cottage at st ninian's near stirling where for a time she lived in the utmost poverty then when her life was almost flickering out in destitution a few of her great relatives condescended to acknowledge her existence the earls of galloway and dunmore the duke of hamilton and mrs stuart mackenzie combined to provide her with an annuity of one hundred pounds and thus secure against want the old lady contrived to spin out the thread of her days a few years longer thus died at the advanced age of eighty-five eating the bread of charity the woman who had in her veins the blood of scotland's greatest men and her fairest women End of chapter seventeen